City Church, my name is Jarrett Stevens, and I'm one of the lead pastors here at Soul City. We are so glad that you are joining us. We are in the midst of our Voices teaching series. This is something that we've done every summer since we started the church, where Gene and I have the privilege of inviting in friends and folks that we admire that we want to speak into our church. And uh, today is no exception. This is a a big deal for us. Uh, Today, we actually have the privilege of having our friend Jeremy Courtney, who is the founder and uh, head CEO leader of Preemptive Love, which is a nonprofit organization uh, doing relief work, waging peace in some of the most uh, intense spots on the globe, in Iraq, in Syria, and in Venezuela as well. Uh, Jeremy and his wife, Jessica, along with their two kids, live in Iraq and have committed the last over a decade of their life um, to really a very simple mission, to ending war. That's all, just that, ending war. And uh, they do it in such beautiful and powerful uh, ways. And I'm so excited for you to hear about what Jeremy is up to and who he is. He's also an author and his most recent book, Love Anyway, which came out uh, this last year is a powerful, powerful, powerful book that helps everyday ordinary folks like you and me find our own front lines so that we can wage peace with the wars that we may be facing. It is a must read. Uh, I was so excited when it came out and so excited to read it. And I'm so excited for you to actually get it and for you to read it. But today we are just thrilled to have as one of our voices speakers, uh, my friend, Jeremy Courtney. Jeremy, Thank you so much for joining us. Good to have you with us. So thank you so much for for being here. Uh, Tell us a little bit about where you are right now. Where are you at right now? Where are you joining us from? Yeah, well, first, thanks. Uh, We've been trying to get together, do this for a couple of years. For a couple of years, yeah. Unfortunately, still not together together, but uh, glad that we can this way. So right now, I'm at my home in Iraq. Uh, where we've lived for, uh, what, nearly 15 years now going on. So I didn't realize it had been that long. You guys have been there. I mean, your kids have essentially grown up in Iraq. Yeah. I think we're in our 14th year, if I remember. Yeah. That's, uh, that is incredible. And so obviously, you know, we have folks joining us from all over the world. Now this COVID reality has caused us to kind of go digital like this. And so we have folks joining us now, our church from all over the world. So it's, it's really, I mean, it's kind of oddly normal that we're, you're in Iraq and we're just having a conversation uh, today. I wish we were in person. Uh, We've known each other for a couple of years now. I have been an admirer of yours. You are a hero to Jeannie and I and your work and your organization. We had the chance to hang out a couple years back and ride horses together with a bunch of very um, unskilled uh, pastors and leaders who did not know how to ride horses. And so we got to experience some life-threatening uh, horseback adventure together. But this has been a conversation I've been wanting to have for a while uh, like I said, we're not only fans of your work, but supporters and believers in your work. So um, your work, Jeremy, is is uh, what some would consider risky. You know, some folks show up to an office back when we used to show up to offices and uh, do that kind of work. Uh, but you really, truly are on the front lines. It's redemptive work. It's risky work, but it's also rooted in your faith. So can you tell us a little bit about your story of faith and how that has informed the work that you're doing in the world today? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
grew up son of a preacher man who was the son of a preacher man. So I, I come, uh, you know, from a line of believers who were giving themselves vocationally and professionally to making disciples, to bringing up people to be, you know, some generational version of yeah. what they had been yeah. in the faith. Yeah. And, um, you know, look, looking back on it now, there's pros and cons to that. Um, <laughs> it, it means that I inherited a faith and there's something really beautiful about that. It also means I inherited a faith yeah, right. and there's some reckoning that has to be done when you just get handed something yeah. rather than work on it or build it or grow it on your own. Yeah. Uh, that really started to come to a head for me with September 11th mm. when America was attacked, number one, and then kind of of two minds after that, mm -hmm. number two. A good mm -hmm. portion of America got very nationalistic and very afraid mm -hmm. and started lashing out at anyone who wasn't like us. Yep. And a portion of America took exception to that and cautioned us to slow down and you know find the better angels of our nature. Mm -hmm. We were a little stuck somewhere in between there. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, from a from a place of love, from a desire to do right by America, by the church, by our faith, by Jesus, and by Muslims mm -hmm. in many ways, mm -hmm. we launched out into the world. We didn't agree with those who were saying, let's bomb them back to the Stone Age. Right. We didn't agree with those who were saying, let's turn Afghanistan into a parking lot. Right. But we also didn't want to live in a world with any more Muslims. Yeah. And so where some of our neighbors and friends grabbed their guns and launched out to go wage war. We grabbed our Bibles hmm. and launched out mm -hmm. to go wage war hmm. because at the end of the day, neither of us wanted to live in a world with Muslims. Hmm. And, and so we went out to plant churches and convert Muslims hmm. and argue them into our faith and argue them into our way of thinking and argue them into our worldview. Hmm. And fast forward a number of years, it didn't work. Um, for me, at least I, hmm. I was not equipped for that. As you might say, I didn't hmm. have the, 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 the I didn't have the spiritual gift of doing that. Uh, might have been how I would have said it at the time. But what it did do for me was it, it helped launch me out into life. It launched our family out into another world, into another country, into another culture. Hmm. And we started getting to know Muslims on their own terms. Hmm. We started getting to know the people that we were so afraid of hmm. as they define themselves hmm. and as they experienced the world. And... I'll just pause here to say that made all the difference. Yeah. Relationship, proximity, and actually yeah. knowing and caring about folks that maybe didn't have the same story or background of you growing up changed your whole perspective on all the things that you'd been inherited, that you'd inherited, that you'd been handed down, beliefs and all of that. And, and that really then launched you into a pretty... Um, remarkable work that you were doing. Not, not, you know, you talked about those two paths. This is very much a third way that uh, preemptive love is actually going about. Um, can you just, for those who may not know, and I know a ton of folks in our church already know about you, have read the book, but for those who may be new or, or just checking us out this weekend, can you unpack the mission of preemptive love? When, when you said to me the other day, um, you know, our mission is simple. We're just trying to end war. That's all. We're just trying to, to end war. That, that seems ambitious. So tell, talk to us practically about what that, what does that look like? What's the work that maybe you started doing? How has that evolved 
over the last 14 or so years? Yeah, when, when I say we exist to end war, I, I certainly don't say it glibly. I, I didn't even dare, we didn't even dare arrive at that language until fairly far into our journey. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like we, we founded a nonprofit and told the IRS we're going to end war. No, we were already living in the neighborhood. We, yeah. were, we were birthed on the streets of Iraq. We yeah. grew up on the streets of Syria. Yeah. And after doing that for a number of years, after showing up on the front lines, after front lines, conflict after conflict, getting shot at, facing kidnapping, bombs, coming out on the other side of some of that, we started to synthesize what, what has this whole last decade and the cycles of violence that we've been through, what, is it, what does it all mean from the American invasion, overthrow, and occupation of Iraq to the rise of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, to the rise of ISIS in Iraq, Syrian civil war, Arab Spring, Libya, you know, all these things that we've been a part of. Yeah. What, is, what does it all mean? And, and what would it, what is our work, what does it amounted to? And it was only kind of in looking at a retrospective of all that and doing an autopsy on what we've been doing that I, I finally got to the courage to say, we exist to end war, we're working to end war. Mm. And, and it's from this vantage point now of having the scars and having the experience and having earned the wisdom and the right to to dare say, no, this is actually possible. Yeah, It's not naive. Yeah. It's not the fever dream of a 20-something-year-old <laughs> anymore. It's, it's the conviction yeah. of someone who's been here at times of peace, seen mm-hmm. the outbreak of violence, mm-hmm. and then seen us find our way back to peace again. Yeah, And what it's taught me is, Violence is optional. We, yeah. we get to choose these things for ourselves. We get mm. to choose how we treat each other. We mm. get to choose what we do for each other. We get to choose mm. the kind of risks that we take on each other. Mm-hmm. We get to choose if we live in a place of fear and scarcity and constantly clutching for ours and me and mine, right. or if we dare to risk and offer and, and divest of ourselves so that other people can, can live freely and, right. and live well. Yeah in this world. And so look, preemptive love can't do everything. Um, we have some tactical things that we're really good at yeah. and I can talk about those later, yeah. but we're not trying to say we have the be all end all solution for what it takes to end war. That's yeah, complex. There's yeah. economy, yeah. there's politics, yeah. there's all kinds of stuff yeah. that goes into it, but there is a slice of what leads us to war that I think we've got a good handle on. Yeah. And I think we are in, at at a juncture of unprecedented kind of times where technology has brought us to a place where there are things possible that were never possible to previous generations. Right. And I think harnessing and leveraging some of that is what gives us the the conviction and the audacity to to say, no, we're here to take seriously the idea that we can actually stop the next war before it stops starts. And, and that when we're in the midst of conflict, there are things we can do to stop it. Yeah. So, I mean, that is, that makes all the sense in the world and it really does. And that you can say, look, we've, we've seen, this is possible. There is, violence is an option, um, as is peace always. And it's not that, I love that you guys say that we're not just trying to pursue peace. We're waging peace. We're actively engaging, 
um, in the ways of peace, which is ultimately rooted in the ways of Jesus. I mean, this really, this is the promise again and again and again and again that he gives to us. This is possible. Peace is possible. Even in the midst of outside forces beyond our control, peace is possible. So I, I do want to hear from you for a second, you know, what, what does that practically look like? Just for, so folks can understand, you know, what, what, do, what does it mean for you? Uh, day, what does a day at the office look like for you? Um, what, what is some of the on the ground work that you guys are doing that you are seeing some of the, the, the fruit of over these many years, you know, and you not just kind of a flash in the pan thing here over these many long faithful years, what are some of the things you're doing that you're seeing help to wage peace? So there's a three-step process that's really easy to explain. Admittedly, it's harder to live out in real life sure. and scale, but it's easy to explain. So I'll just talk about the one, two, three process that we follow. Okay. So before the whole world was enmeshed in this global pandemic, we were also talking about and thinking and treating violence like a pandemic, mm. violence like a virus, like a disease mm. that spreads. And there mm. is epidemiological research, much of it rooted in Chicago, mm. that proves violence spreads like a disease. And so we follow the epidemiological model that many of us have now become so much more aware of in the last you know, couple yeah. of months of COVID, right. of how do you stop the spread of a virus? Yeah. So the World Health Organization kind of breaks it down into three very simple things. One, you respond fast yeah. to patient zero or ground zero or the outbreak. You, you got to get there early on yeah, contained. because if you don't get there early on, it's going to spread a lot further. Yeah. That's yeah. step number one. Step number two, you got to protect the vulnerable. We talked a lot about this over the last couple of months, mm. the elderly and children and stuff mm. like that. So we got to protect the vulnerable people with compromised immune systems. There are people who are especially vulnerable to the spread of violence mm. in times of conflict as mm. well. Uh, young men mm -hmm. are especially vulnerable to getting dragged further into violence. So we have a way that we work to protect the vulnerable. And then the third thing that World Health Organization recommends for stopping the spread of a disease is changing the behaviors that lead to the spread of the yeah. disease. So this is where we learn to wash our hands. Shelter in place. Or all, yeah, right. Wear masks. Exactly. Yeah, right. So we map our programming along those three simple things. Number one, we show up quickly on the front lines to stop the spread of violence. We show up with food. We show up with medicine. We show up mm. with the things that people need when they are at their most vulnerable, mm. their most angry, yeah. their most marginalized, and they are most likely to lash out further and then set the next domino falling. Yeah. And then the next domino. So you got political groups who could fight each other, like racial groups that could fight religious groups. So we show up fast when bombs are still falling and snipers are still sniping to intervene, provide people what they need at great risk to our teams so that we can stop the spread of violence. That's number one. Number two, we have a massive jobs program. Like we, yeah. we think billion dollar impacts when we yeah. think about creating jobs, yeah. billion dollar impacts because Research shows that stable economies are less prone to get dragged into violence, dragged yeah. into civil war, things yeah. like that. So if we can create mass jobs, mass income, and we make people such that they aren't vulnerable to the militia coming around trying to drag them into the militia or the military trying to conscript them in the military or the gang coming around putting pressure on them to join up. Mm -hmm. If you have a good job, you're not out of the woods, but research shows that you're significantly better off than those who might 
have no other option but to join ISIS or, right. or to join the cartel or something right. like that. Right. And then three, when we talk about changing the behaviors, we often talk about changing the ideas mm. that lead to war, mm. how we think about one another, how we think about ourselves, what is our place in the world, why are we scared of each other, why do we live from such a scarcity mindset? So we bring people together, we work a lot on exposing ourselves to you know new ideas and new experiences we have online communities and offline communities all over the world mm. where we try to bring people who are different from one another into healthy hearty conversations so mm. that they can explore why am i the way i am and why are you the way you are that one two three model relief jobs and community marks everything that we do wow that that you, when you lay it out like that it makes so much sense that, and when you even compare it up to, you know, how to stop a pandemic, how to stop a virus, I mean, that really does make sense to intercede before violence can plant a seed and sort of spread like that. And, and this is with a team of how many people on the ground, like your team, you know, they're all over the place. They're not just there in Iraq, but how many total people working with your organization, Jeremy? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're growing a lot right now um, as we look toward, you know, 100 million refugees coming our way between climate change and conflict. So we're growing a lot right now. We're at about 120 people right now across Iraq, Syria, uh, kind of all of the Levant, Middle East, Mexico, Venezuela, and the U.S. Wow, that's that is significant work for those folks. And so I, I wonder... Is there, you know, I'd love to hear a story of, you know, kind of how you've, uh, a story that shaped you in the work that you're doing, personal story of how you've either seen this work take root or seen the reason for why this work is so important that Preemptive Love is doing. Can you help kind of paint a picture, a personal picture for us of what compels you to do what you're doing? Because there's a lot of other mm. things you could be doing. I mean, there's a thousand, you know, there's a thousand other things you could be doing. But you, you've chosen this path of waging peace, of interceding and getting there. In like you said, when you say our folks are on the ground, it, risking their lives, that's not hyperbole. They're literally being shot at. The risk of being held hostage, killed. I mean, this is significantly dangerous work. Is there a a story from what you've been doing that would help us kind of understand what compels you to, to keep going. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, I think back to, um, I mean, maybe many of our friends here would be familiar with the, the name of the city Fallujah. Mm -hmm. Um, Fallujah for a, for a time there, maybe in the, the first decade of the 2000s, was probably regarded around the world as maybe the most dangerous city on the planet. Um, after the U.S. invasion of Iraq, Al-Qaeda in Iraq kind of took up and made it a home base. It was kind of the ISIS before ISIS. Fallujah was known as the bomb factory. It mm -hmm. was the place that they manufactured in you know underground warehouses, these... Uh, improvised explosive devices yeah. that then they would send suicide bombers out to attack yeah. markets, both Iraqi and then, you know, American and foreign troops. So Fallujah just took on this like outsized negative personality in, in the eyes of much of the world. And to be sure, it was a, a truly terrifying place under Al Qaeda's leadership. Um, 
as a result of this is kind of a soft spread of violence as a result of the violence that originated from Fallujah, then Fallujah itself and Fallujans and all the people who are kind of inclined to come from that area, they started to take on a really negative perception in the eyes of people who weren't from there. So if you're Sunni Arab, then you're all just part of the problem, you know? And that kind of became the, the epitaph or the banner over Sunni Arabs across Iraq. And, you know, you can just see how like one domino falls, yep. the next domino yep. falls, you know, yep. the, the biases and the prejudices yep. just start to stack up on each other. So fast forward about a decade, ISIS comes on the scene, has taken over about a third of Iraq. They've taken over Fallujah again. And um, we had been doing some programming in Fallujah. We were doing medical work in Fallujah and ISIS effectively drove us out of town and occupied Fallujah again now for about a year or two. And when the military started coming in to push ISIS out two years later, we were embedded with the military. So we were, we were like tip of the spear, as they say, or we were on the front lines. We were the very first international aid organization in the entire world to step foot back into Fallujah after ISIS took it over. And it was, it was so, it was such a mixed bag. It was, it was so difficult for our team to experience and live through. For the couple of months preceding that, the news coming out of Fallujah was that people were starving. They were eating cats off the street. Mm, yeah, they were living on grass. They, right. I mean, they were boiling cardboard and feeding it to their kids. It was just, it was horrible, horrible news. But when the military went in and, and we with them, the old fears rose up. Um, what we had all kind of initially been inclined to feel as empathy. Oh my gosh, can you believe ISIS is starving these people out? They're having to eat street animals and boiled cardboard, that empathy was fairly quickly squashed back down when you come face to face with the enemy and you're in a militarized environment mm -hmm. and the guns are already drawn. Mm -hmm. and, and so you start seeing men come out toward you. You start seeing people come out towards you and it can be really the, the default knee-jerk reaction is to, is to go into a place of kind of defensiveness. Yeah, right, defensive. yep. Or just to get get arms right. up and you know go into a place so of aggression. Yep. And I mean, I, I don't have a specific name or specific story, but just to say, like that whole environment taught us so much about our need to to slow down, to 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 take the risk that yes, this woman under her baggy robes may in fact be weaponized by ISIS with a suicide explosive device and take us all out. That may happen. That We saw that in Fallujah. We saw it in Tikrit. We saw it in Mosul. We've seen it in Syria. That is a tactic. But, but the converse, what, what we often think, what's the cost mm -hmm. of this person doing harm to me? Right. But what we're less inclined to think is what's the cost of of not doing it right. You know, yeah. what, what's the inverse? What's the right. cost of us doing harm right. to them? And what's the right. knock-on effect of that? And so we've just, we've kind of embedded with military in a lot of these environments and taken on a bit of a protector advocate role. And this mm. is very controversial kind of in international aid and humanitarian mm. circles. 
um, embedding with the military is often thought to be endorsing yeah, or right. aligning. Embed with, yeah. aligning with. Yeah. And we've tried to take more of a partnership watchdog kind of environment where mm-hmm. we've got something they need to appease yeah. the masses. We've got food, we've got medical aid, we've got support, but we're not going to sit by blindly and let them do things unchecked yeah. and unwatched. And so, I don't know, that was a bit all over the place. No. I haven't reflected on some of that in years, but I, I think the upshot of it is these are, these are people hmm. to be loved, yeah. not problems to be solved. Mm. Say it again, Jeremy. <laughs> Say that again. All of us. Yeah. Wherever we find conflict and, and war and the things that are tearing us apart, we're dealing with people, people. to be loved, yeah. not problems to be solved. Man, man. I, I, I mean, we could just spin that out to a thousand cultural debates and, and yep. points of tension and contention right now in this country, in any country that we start with, I need to solve this problem. And but here's what, here's, let's go back to the faith thing that you asked at the top. Yeah, so I'm super yeah. animated. No, go, go, because go. Because you asked, you asked how my faith informs. Yeah. What, what that early missionary life taught me, what that faith that I inherited from my grandfather via my dad and that growing up, what it taught me, what it ingrained as muscle memory before I even knew what the moves meant was you got to lay down your life. You got to count the cost. Yeah. Making those decisions up front before you're really confronted with the impact of what a naive thing you've just done or what a cost <laughs> right, you've right, just done. Right, right. That has made all the difference. Yeah. And I'm afraid that the church writ large isn't calling any of us to lay down our life anymore. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I think, I don't think you're wrong. I think that it is the, the, slow, subtle drift to comfort and to sort of the good life um, versus a gospel life um, is so seductive. And for me personally, you know, it's for my family, for this church, you know, that it's like, yeah, we, you know, it's so easy to just default to, well, we just want to help people live good lives. And that's not found in the life of Jesus. That's not the example of life Jesus. It was a full life but it was a life laid down for the sake of others. That's how you truly know, you know, what love is. It's that you're willing to lay your life down, to count the cost, to carry a cross, to literally be willing to do that. And I, I think you're exactly right, Jeremy. I think for each of us, whatever it may be, uh, and I want to get to that thought in a second about how, you know, for a lot of folks watching, they, they, they may be thinking like, oh gosh, I am I supposed to move to Iraq? Am I supposed to go in and, and embed with military. Like I'm just trying to be a school teacher here. I'm just trying to raise these kids or I'm just trying to earn a good living here. So I want to get to yep. what, how that shapes us personally. I just want to ask you kind of just personally here, what, what keeps you from quitting? You know, it is, you know, I, I, I can go through spells where it's a hard leadership push. We were talking about this the other day. So it's a hard leadership push or we're trying to see the church take new ground or see people's lives change or whatever it may be. Or I get a bunch of, you know, some emails that I don't like that are critical, you know, and I can just go, I just want to quit. Just be so much easier if I just quit. I I can imagine that you've had those days where you're just like, what are we doing? You know, where 
You look at yourself, you look at your kids going, is this still worth it? What, what has kept you? What is keeping you from quitting Jeremy? I get this question a lot. And I, I sometimes wonder what it means. Like, am I supposed to feel bad that this is my answer? I don't want to quit. I don't know if I've ever wanted to quit. We've had super hard days, but I don't recall ever wanting to throw in the towel. Hmm. Um, and I, I think it's, it's a combination of like this big, massive mountain out there that we're trying to get to, that we're trying to climb. It's always on the horizon. It seems like no matter how much ground we cover, mm-hmm. it's always still out of reach, right? So there's this, this gravitational pull dynamic into the future, into the horizon that, that is always just out of reach or massively out of reach right, right, right. to end all to end right, war. Right. Um, uh, and, and, but, but there's a, there's a up close personal dynamic as well, yeah. where, you know, we don't have a headquarters, right. unlike kind of the old guard, the old generation of organizations that were born, we were born in the cloud, so to speak. Yeah, so right. we don't have headquarters in London or right. New York or right. Chicago or DC. Right. We we're, we're on the front lines as many of us as we can possibly be. And so I get to be front lines Hmm. to the lives of real people, their pain, their promise, their joy, their suffering. And that is, that's like the push, the the potential in people and the pain Mm. that people are going through. It it pushes me forward. Mm. And then there's this pull into the future. So I think Mm. maybe here's the gut check. Mm. If you want to quit, if you want to throw in the towel, Check your calibration on one of those two things. Mm. Are you living for something big enough and compelling enough Mm. that you're actually waking up every single day to Mm. think about? Mm. And are you, and is it incorporated into every single ounce of what you do in this world? Mm. Because I promise you every single ounce of what we do in this world is to end war. And then check the other side of the equation. If, If you don't feel like you're being pulled at a, fast enough and a significant enough philosophy velocity, then check the push factor. Yeah, are yeah, you, so are you close enough to the pain of people? Are you, yeah. are you up close and integrated with mm. the promise of people who are different than you that, that they're compelling you forward and pushing you to spend of yourself in ways that you might not otherwise do. Jeremy, that is brilliant. And I don't know that I've heard someone articulate it as simply as that is that there are some people who are compelled by a pull, a big vision. I wanna see this, or I wanna be a part of this, or whatever it may be, right? It could be for their family, could be for their life, could be for their vocation. You know, they have a vision, but they lack sort of the, the day-to-day, person-to-person, life-to-life touch of it. And so it stays kind of ethereal, you know? And then it also, then it moves into eventually a place of regret, you know, maybe remorse that I didn't ever live into that vision. And then there's other folks who are compelled just by the day-to-day. They cannot help but bumping up against people's lives, people's needs, you know, the, the real things that are going on, but maybe they lack sort of a, a vision of what to do with that or how to direct their life towards that. So that is such a simple way of looking at my life, that calibration, but yet so powerful. The pull of a vision, I believe a God-given vision that, that compels me and the push of the touch, the day-to-day, the life-to-life, the person-to-person, you know, working out of that vision. That is, man, that is a powerful, that is, I'm going to have to think about that and really reflect on that because that is really beautiful and really powerful. So thank you 
I did not expect that to come. So thank you. That is really awesome. I want to end with this question because this really uh, messes with me when you say this and, and it makes all the sense in the world um, and, it's, and it messes with me. You know, for most of my life growing up, I grew up around the church and kind of similar to you, kind of similar in context. You know, I thought of war as this noble and thing that we go do to solve people's problems over there. There's um, oppressed people over there. There's a government that needs to be overthrown. They've crossed a line or they've threatened us or they're threatening their people. So we send our troops over there to solve their problem. And you have a way of kind of helping see because that's what you're over there, you know, doing this kind of work. You are on the literal front lines. But you push into that it's not just about them over there, but to looking at the war here with me. Unpack that just as we wrap up here, Jeremy. What do you mean by that we get so, it's so easy to think of them over there, but we completely miss the war, the front lines going on with us or with me over here? So I I think a a fair segment of American society has long regarded war as something that happens over there. It's something that we get to go do to live into our American values. We get to go free the oppressed Iraqis Mm -hmm. from the dictatorship of Saddam Hussein. Mm -hmm. We, We call for the overthrow of Bashar al-Assad in Syria because of the oppression of the Syrian people. We call for same thing in Venezuela, so on and so forth. We we love to see ourselves as liberators, as those who free the oppressed. And there is some there's something there. What we have, what that same segment of society has often failed to do perpetually for like 400 years is realize that to the outside world looking at us, we have a vast, vast part of our society who is crying out for an overthrow of the dictatorial systems Mm -hmm. that have kept them down, that have Mm -hmm. kept them hungry, that have Mm -hmm. kept them poor, that have kept Mm -hmm. them disenfranchised, Mm -hmm. that have kept them out and Mm -hmm. under and Mm -hmm. starving and choked out for 400 years. Mm. And, when we see people rising up against Muslim leaders like Saddam Hussein, we say, yeah, uh-huh. do it, go, burn it down, uh-huh. and we'll come help rebuild it. Uh-huh. When the same thing happens on our own streets, we all of a sudden become very proper and polite and don't like to see oppression manifest itself uh-huh. calling for freedom uh-huh. in such a way. Uh-huh. And in the very least, what we must do as the American project, American society, is we need to at least get consistent Mm. with our domestic policy Mm. and our foreign policy. Mm. If it is right for us to deploy our troops to go free Iraqis from the oppression of Saddam Hussein, then it is right Mm. for us to find a way to dismantle those same dictatorial oppressive systems where they exist in the United States, Mm. to listen to the cries of black America, and to take action accordingly. Mm. If it is wrong for black America to want to burn it down and start over, if it is wrong for black America to say, this is not working, you broke the social contract, then that should also influence what we do overseas. Mm. What I think we need to do is recognize that oppression is oppression. And we need to find a consistent ethic of human life across the board. Mm. 
Because what we're doing right now is revealing that our, our freedom projects, our, mm. our liberation projects are not really rooted in values. Mm. They're, they're rooted in power. Mm. They're rooted in dominance. They're rooted in taking land and perpetuating the power systems that already exist. They're mm. not actually rooted in caring about the people crying out for help. It's a, mm. it's a fig leaf. It's a mustache. Mm. It's a cover. And the gig's up. Mm. Um, Jeremy, can you give us your email for all the folks who are going to want to send emails after that last answer? <laughs> we'll send it to you. I think you're, you're hitting it head on. I mean, this is what Jesus called out in the Pharisees. You're whitewashed tombs. You have this outward appearance of, in their case, for the Pharisees, righteousness, holiness. And yet inside, though, you are missing it. You're missing the point. And that is not to condemn or to shame, but to call into light a reality that is true of me personally. That can be 100% true of me. I can stand on a stage and tell people how great God is and they should trust God and follow God and yet be dead inside. That can happen to me. And if it can happen to me, then it can happen to a country as well where we can have policy and where we can send, like you said, troops over there to help with their problems while neglecting our own at home. And I think... This moment that we are living in this summer is, I pray, a, a reckoning and a reconciling of the inconsistency that exists within us. And that's not a political statement. That's an integrity statement. That's an ethical statement of, for, for us to see that there is work over here, not just over there, over here as well. And wouldn't it be great to to see that work come in our lifetime for our kids. We're about the same age for our kids to inherit a different reality, a different narrative. Um, and that's the work that all of us actually, we actually get to play. It goes back to the push and pull. If that's the pull of the vision that I see and I want for, for my life or my community, then I have the, 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 the push is how I live that out day to day with others how I see my black brothers and sisters, my brown brothers and sisters, my folks who are being oppressed and marginalized, the LGBTQI community. Like, how do I lovingly engage with my neighbor to live out a greater ethic of God's love transforming my community, my country, the world? So, man, you saved a whole word there for the end, Jeremy. Thank you. That is a powerful concept for each of us to consider. Jeremy, if people want to connect with you or with preemptive love, um, how can they do so? What, what, what's the best way for folks to, to connect? We've Obviously, I would say your book is a great resource, period. Um, it, love anyway, anyone can grab that. What, what's a way that for folks to connect with you, to keep up with, to support the work that you guys are doing? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're to be found on all the, the major platforms under the name Preemptive Love. So Preemptive Love Coalition, that's our name. You can find us everywhere under Preemptive Love, preemptivelove.org, Preemptive Love on Instagram. And um, yeah, we just love to encourage people to check out and go deeper with, with what it is that we're trying to do. I mean, I've cast kind of the big vision here. But when you, when you follow along at a more granular level, I think you can start to see how it all pieces together on the day by day. It's not just big ideas, yeah. nor is it just day-to-day -day yeah. tactics. There's, there's, there's an interplay between the two. And I think you got to live it and see it and walk it a little bit with us to start understanding how it plays out in, in Chicago, yeah. how it plays out in your streets yeah. and, and why I really think 
we're at war, mm. but we don't have to be. Mm. That, that war is not mm. just for Syria, but we've got a war on mm. black bodies mm. in the United States. We've got a global war on the LGBTQ community. And mm. so when we say we exist to end war, we're going there. Yeah. For all who are marginalized, for all who are oppressed, yeah. because it doesn't have to be this way. Man, thank you. And we're so grateful for you guys and for the work that you're doing and for sharing your time with us this weekend. What an honor. I wonder if you would lean back into that heritage of yours that you inherited, lean back into that uh, pastoral lineage. And would you uh, pray for us as we move into a time of responding to God right now? We want to worship God. We want to acknowledge that God, is, that there is a God and he is good. He is for us. He is with us. He's for all. Uh, who his children, everyone who he's created. So would you just pray for us as we move into a time of, of responding to worship, Jeremy? I would, and I'm going to pray in this way because I grew up personifying God, which there's mm. some real beauty there. Mm. But in personifying God, I now know that the, the picture of who I had in my head mm -hmm. It was problematic because I was seeing someone a lot like me. I was seeing someone a lot like my people. Mm -hmm. And so I was excluding a lot of people who were not already in my head and in my mind space. So let me not pray to that person. Mm -hmm. Let me, let me do the other one that we're often exposed to in scripture. Let me pray spirit. Yes. Here. I know both are appropriate. Let me pray yes. spirit. Yeah. Spirit in us. Mm-hmm through us, mm -hmm. around us, mm -hmm. in all the places of the world that we live and move and have our being and find ourselves spirit. Mm. You are common to all of us. You are available to yes. all of us. You are accessible to all of us. Yes. You are the ground of everything, the ground of our being. You are the goal of our being. Let us be animated by you. Let us be lit up by you. Live and move and breathe through these bodies that we have and, and move our bodies, our physical bodies to put ourselves on the line at risk for those who are more vulnerable. For those who are have been pushed to the margins. That's what these bodies are for. These bodies are to lay down in service of love. Mm. So spirit, animate us, enliven us, make us alive to move these physical bodies to serve, sacrifice, and to love. Mm. We surrender ourselves to you. Amen.